0: Gordy's practical joke was messing up my notes, going, ha ha, this goes here and this goes here, so. Well, guys, I want to start off this morning by asking uh, a question of you, and I'm going to get to that question right now. Okay, we're all settled. Have you ever heard life-altering news that changed the course of your life forever, whether it's been good news or bad news? It could be for you that you received word from the company you've interviewed with that you got that job and there's going to be a a trajectory of financial security for your life. Could be, ladies, you found out you were pregnant and that child that you and your husband were praying for for years is finally here. It could be that as a high schooler, you just got accepted to the school of your dreams with a full ride and your parents are more excited than you are. It could be on the other opposite end of the spectrum where it could be a phone call from your doctor that confirms it is cancer. Or it could be receiving the news of a loved one suddenly passing away and you didn't get the chance to say goodbye. Regardless of whether it's good or bad, all of us have experienced or at some point in time will experience life-altering news that will change the course of our lives. And today, we're going to get the opportunity to look in Scripture at when Jesus gave some life-altering news to the disciples. This section of Scripture is called the Great Commission, and these were Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven. For us as a church, we just finished up Holy Week, as Gordy was talking about. Uh, We saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to cleanse the temple, to be a house of prayer for the nations, and eventually on Friday, he died on a Roman cross. Then last Sunday, we celebrated Easter, Christ's Resurrection Day. And Gordy reminded us of how Christ has set us free from sin and Satan and death and how Christ desires us now to live a life that bears fruit for him. So today, what is this life-altering news that the disciples heard that changed the course of their life forever? And how does this life-altering news change your life in my life today? It's simply this, Jesus calls us into disciple-making ministry himself. He says, you, you, you make disciples. As he's made disciples of us, we are in turn to make disciples of others. So if you would grab your Bibles, uh, grab your app, please open up to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to be in verses 16 through 20, and it says this. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen with you here. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The first thing I want us to, to know today is that Jesus is the risen King who has all authority from verses 16 through 18. Let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a minute. Such a wave of emotion have hit them over the last week. Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the disciples are thinking, yes, now this Messiah King has come to overthrow Rome and take back Israel. And then on Friday, all of a sudden, Jesus dies. Unexpected to the disciples. How could he be dead? This is not the way it was supposed to be. And thinking of Saturday after that grieving hopelessness for them. What now? We we gave up our lives for him and he left. He died. But then on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in Scripture, not the mother of Jesus, they came together to the 11 and said, Jesus is alive. Could you imagine the freak out session the disciples had? What? No way. Are you kidding me? This is actually true? And so what do they do? They go to that mountain that Jesus told them to go to. So they got up and left and they went to this mountain near Galilee and all of a sudden they see Jesus. He's alive. But the text says that there's a mixed reaction. Some worshiped him. Some literally bowed down to Jesus and were amazed at the fact that this is all true, that he's alive, he's risen, and he's come back. Others doubted, and, and literally it means that they hesitated. There was a, there was a moment of doubt, and they said, could, could this really be true? Or is this too good to be true, rather? Is this Jesus really before my eyes? Now, the question on everyone's mind is, what now? You're here, you're back. Are you going to do some crazy miracle? Are you going to actually restore the kingdom to Israel that I thought you were going to do a week earlier? What are you going to do, Jesus. And instead of doing an action, Jesus gave them this life-altering news. This is how he starts. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This statement sums up the past three years of what these disciples saw Jesus do. They saw him as a servant. They saw him as a miracle worker. They saw him as a profound teacher. And yet with this sentence, he declares himself to be the risen king who has all authority. You see, the resurrection is the event that displays Christ's authority and power more than any other. Colossians 2, Paul writes in there, and he says that it's literally like Satan pulling the weapons of their warfare, taking them away, disarming demons. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took Satan's kingdom and he crushed it. The curse that ruled and reigned ever since Adam and Eve was broken and there was a new king on the throne. For us, since we don't live in a theocracy where there's a, there's a king, we live in a democracy, oftentimes we don't understand what it means when a king really takes the throne. For us, as a president, living in a democracy, we're used to voting him or out, recognizing that there's a time limit to his power and influence. We're, we're used to seeing that sometimes not much changes when you elect a president or re-elect a president, regardless of the promises that were given in the campaign trail. And we're used to sometimes being a dissenting voice against the president in our society because, due to our First Amendment rights, we have the capability of doing that. Yet, in the first century world, when a king took the throne, everything changed. There's no voting this king in or out, he rules by military might and power. There were drastic changes that took place immediately. His face was on their currency. Any of you guys got that Obama silver dollar in your pocket? We don't. There's not that type of instant change that happens. His policies were implemented and he governed the land. And you couldn't have a dissenting voice against him for he is the ruler. And he is the king and you did what the king told you to do. And see, this is what Christ has done. Christ is more powerful than Satan, more powerful than his kingdom. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, defeated Satan. And his kingdom has been overthrown. Amen? Amen. Hmm. So all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus. Nothing can overpower him. Wherever there is something that exists in this universe, Jesus has authority over his resurrection vindicated him as the king over all. His resurrection defeated death once and for all. And his resurrection established him as the Lord over all. And here's, here's why this matters for you and me. Because you and I have to live underneath his authority. As you know, submission is not something that is looked upon with favor in our world. It's probably more safe to say for most of us that we prefer to be in authority rather than underneath. You want to run your own business so that you can make your own rules and your own job description. If you want to argue your way out of that ticket even though you were doing 70, but you got clocked at 80. You want to be that voice in your organization because the leader right now in your organization doesn't like your ideas and they're good. Right? We want to be in authority. We don't want to be under it. But this is so unlike our King Jesus. Jesus is the risen King who willingly submitted himself to the Father's will here on earth. You're in heaven, you're being worshipped by millions of angels and the elders are falling before you saying, worthy are you, Lord. And yet Jesus steps into a human body. That is limiting, isn't it? He he lives his life underneath the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he is living his life dependent, day in, day out, decision, action, based upon the Holy Spirit's leading. And then on Good Friday, even when Jesus did not want to obey, he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus is our example of a life of submission to the Father. And because of this, Jesus doesn't rule like other leaders or other rulers in this world. He does not have an iron fist. He leads from humility and service. He leads from a servant's place. That's why Mark 10.45 says he has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what King Jesus wants for his people is to be them to be willingly submissive to his authority and live underneath it. And we have to be those types of people. We cannot do whatever we want to do. We cannot. We must do as he commands. Do I have to convince you today from the word of God that this is what God wants for you? Or do you and I have a heart where we come and we open this book, no matter where we place our finger, we're going to say, yes, Lord. We're going to say, yes, Lord. We're going to agree. We're going to obey. We're going to follow. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Because what Jesus has to say changes our lives, and it's life-altering news. We work at our jobs and we're submissive to his authority by submitting to the authority over, neath, over us. rather. As we love our neighbor, we're submissive to his authority because we choose to live out his command to love our neighbor as ourself. We live, we work, we play underneath this authority. And for the 11 disciples, this was only the tip of the iceberg for what Jesus was going to share Next, Jesus says this, he he sends his disciples to make disciples. Verse 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now this would have probably been a real staggering thought for the disciples to hear. How am I going to make disciples? Jesus, you're the rabbi, I'm the follower, let's not mix up those two positions, okay? Okay? I'm following you. I chose to give up my life for you. But you never said there was going to be a bait and switch at the end. You never said that. I just chose to follow. But notice, Jesus did not say, well, guys, because of your amazing ability over the last three years, you are now good to go and make disciples. He doesn't say that. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go. Go. He doesn't look to our abilities and the disciples' abilities to say, hey, you guys are going to kill it. He says, you're going to need my help like crazy. And you got to go. Jesus' command to, to his disciples is to replicate themselves. They're to multiply. They're to be reproducing agents of people. They're supposed to make disciples. And the emphasis here on those who are far away from God. Those of the nations who have not yet heard of the goodness and the glory of Christ. And you see, after this second sentence of life-altering news, the ball was rolling that set in motion the last 2,000 years of church history. Do you remember the book of Acts last summer as we were going through it? It's literally the springboard off of this statement from Jesus. Go and make disciples. It becomes the central vision of the New Testament with every book, whether historical or doctrinal, about the purpose and practice of making disciples. And so these disciples were to do, do, were to do two things specifically in Jesus. They were supposed to baptize and they were supposed to teach. So baptism means the inclusion for the new believer into union with Christ and his church. And teaching instructs those newly made disciples towards maturity. So let's take a look at Baptism. Jesus says, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. When somebody repents of their sin, the first step of obedience is for them to be baptized. They're to declare their public allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. And so it's that symbol of union with Christ and his church. As we go into the water, we're baptized into his death, Paul says. And then as we come up out of that water, we're, we're raised to new life. And see, this is a very common practice throughout the New Testament, the first sermon ever preached by Peter after he was filled with the Spirit, which was nuts. Read it. It was long. They listened. It was a preacher's dream to get up and talk forever, and they're going, yep, I'll do whatever you want. What do they, and what does he say? He says, repent and be baptized. It's the first command. So this, for the disciples, if Jesus is telling them to go and baptize, it means that they were to be actively pursuing people of different faith backgrounds, racial ethnicities, and philosophies of the world for the purpose of seeing them become Christians. The disciples pursued lost people. That's the whole point of baptism. It's pursuing those who are far away and seeing them come into union with Christ. So next, let's look at teaching. So teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is the maturing process of those who have become followers of Jesus. Once someone becomes a Christian, the rest of their lives is doing this is learning from Jesus and and, and learning how to follow and obey. What I think is crucial here is that Jesus wasn't telling the disciples to remember to teach themselves. To say, hey guys, remember to do this yourself and grow yourself. He is saying to his disciples, you go and teach others. You have a responsibility to teach others about me. And this is what this means. The disciples can't just go and evangelize someone who is not a believer in Jesus. Share the gospel with them, see them place their faith in Christ, uh, dunk them in the nearest lake, and then skedaddle. They can't do that. They have to be present in their discipleship growing process. So then that leads us to a question what arena of life is this disciple making supposed to be done? The, The 11 disciples had families, they had jobs after Jesus rose. They went back into daily life. So how were they supposed to make disciples? Jesus answers it by telling them to go. And in, in the context, it's just really as you are going, as you are living your life, as you are going about your day, make disciples. Now granted, all throughout church history and scripture, we see people leave one location and go to the next location, and we consider that missionary work. And yet, Jesus considers missionary work, that in addition to as you are going. You see, this is a very similar thing that that these guys would have heard. Most of them were Jews. They, They knew about the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, God says something very similar to them about their parenting style. How are you supposed to parent your kid and teach them about God? You know, as you walk along the path to life, as you lay down to sleep at night, as you cook dinner with your kids, that's where you teach. That's how you parent. You teach them about God in every arena of life. So Jesus is saying, guys, do the same exact thing in disciple making. Regardless of the situations you're in, you're called to go. Go. Jesus says elsewhere in John 20, 21, as the father has sent me, so I send you. It's this reciprocal action from the father sending the son and the son then commissioning us to go. As believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are sent people, regardless of situation, that we were called to be disciple makers. So let's move from the 11 disciples to us. What does this mean, this life altering news of the Great Commission for us? The same exact thing. The same command that was given to Jesus' disciples is the same that he gives to us today. You and I are sent people, we're disciple makers of Jesus Christ. You and I have the awesome privilege to go to work with Jesus, to share about him to those who don't know him, of all races, sexes, and belief systems see them come to faith in Christ, baptize them into union with Christ and each other, and then teach them to obey and follow. You and I are called to this task, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful, many of us are doing this. There's two great examples from the Graham and McDonald Life Group. One gal, her name was was Nolene. She had a life of constant searching for meaning, whether she was a hippie or a biker. Those were her words. Just going to put that out there. There were never any true or lasting satisfaction in this constant identity switching life for her. But she had a ton of loss in her life. From 2001 to 2007, she had lost a number of family members. And then in 2012, with the loss of her sister due to complications of cancer treatments, she was done. She was mad at God, she was mad at the world. That's where she lived. She lived in her anger and searching for an identity that never fit. So Nolene was a waitress at Lupe's in in Thousand Oaks, and Doug and Donna Graham and, and Mike and Barbara McDonald would frequent there together for dinner. And what she noticed about them was great. They were always so gracious and kind, no matter how bad I screwed up their order. The Grahams and and the McDonald's kept inviting her to life group, and as she spent time in relationship with them, talking with them, just over meals at the restaurant, she goes, I want what you have. But she couldn't go on Wednesday nights because that was her work night. So lo and behold, she accidentally injures herself on the job, files for disability, and Wednesdays are free. So then she showed up, went for nine and ten months, learned to love the Word of God, and finally started to understand the Bible. And it was during that nine to ten month period of time that she gave her life to Christ. There's a new disciple in this body. Her name is Nolene. Love her. Come alongside her and rejoice with her. There's another gal, Tanya, and for her, she had a life full of mockery, she told me. She was made fun of a lot as a kid, and and even though she grew up in a religious family, she knew that she had to cling to God kind of throughout it all. So she first mentally believed in Christ for the first time at a Billy Graham crusade in Spokane, Washington. But this was more of a mere agreement with beliefs rather than a real lifestyle change for her, she said. So years went by and she ended up living in Moore Park, and she ends up needing to move out of her house and move near the, the high school or move from the high school to the college area. And James and Leanne Guy are her neighbors. So James says one day, hey, I've got a lot of guys at the church who can come over and help out and, and you know, help you move. And she goes, people still do that? Yeah, were, she was blown away. Like 10 or 12 guys from our church showed up with a trailer, moved her out, a couple of hours, she was in her new house. She was blown away. So all these guys came and they did what they said they would do. And so then James invited her to the life group. So then she shows up. And she starts to learn more about God, even though she was baptized as a baby, she then, at that point in time, chose to become a follower of Jesus, not just mentally agreeing with what he says, but choosing to obediently live. She was baptized in the life group as well, just like Nolene. We had pictures, but they're so pixelated. I just wanted to show them to you. I can show you on my phone because it's just smaller, but they would look absolutely horrendous up there and do no justice to it. But they got baptized. Isn't that wonderful? They love Jesus now. And they love Jesus because of two ordinary couples in our church who went one to a restaurant and James and Leanne who lived right next door. They just they just were as they were going right, as they were going, they're making disciples. It was funny. I called Doug the other day to ask him about this, and I'm like, dude, I'm just so excited for your ministry. He goes, hey man, I'm just being faithful to the Lord. I just love that. Even when I try to encourage the guy, he's like, nope, nope, it's for Jesus. I love that. He's humble, he's gracious, he's real, and all he's trying to do is be faithful. They're ordinary people. They're just pursuing. They've reoriented their lives to see every situation as an opportunity. And they're bearing much fruit. And see, for others of us are doing this and people aren't coming to faith in Christ. In fact, they face mockery or rejection because of it. So I'm gonna tell you a little example of what happened to me with one of my atheist buddies. So we're hanging out. And um, just, I've gotten to know him over a while and spent a lot of time just getting to know his story, his life, kind of what he believes. And uh, he ended up telling me about his rocky marriage and just how things are really bad. And so after a number of conversations, I just kept talking with him and he knows I'm a pastor. So at some point I'm like, dude, we're going to talk about Jesus. Just let me know when and where it's going to happen. And so I like, well, I'm going to cash in the card now. Hey, can we talk about Jesus right now? I know you're going through some brokenness, but can, can I pray for you? And he kind of reluctantly says, sure. And so I put my hand on his shoulder and I start praying for him and just thinking about him and praying for him. And then in my head, I stop and I go, this guy must think I'm totally nuts right now. (laughs) He doesn't believe in God. I'm this weirdo dude who's putting my hand on his shoulder, praying for him. Got my eyes shut. He's probably looking at me going like, what are you doing? And so I'm praying for him and I'm thinking about this. So then my, my train of thought stops and I go, and so I say this out loud. I'm like, God, So-and-so probably thinks I'm crazy right now, and I can't make this up. Without skipping a beat, he goes. So I'm like, I'm in mid-prayer at the dude, and he's laughing at me. And all I'm trying to do is be like, dude, you need Jesus, I love you, I want you to meet him, and he's mocking me right there. But here's the deal. I don't do it because I'm gonna get rah, rah, sis, boom, he met Jesus. I do it because Jesus tells me to be faithful, to do it. Regardless of response, my goal is not to have a great response. My goal is to be faithful to the gospel. So, how do we make disciples? We got to be available. We have to be available people for the Holy Spirit to lead us to serve others. The whole books of, of Acts is them choosing to be available to the Holy Spirit to love and serve and lead people and talk to them about Jesus. So, what are the areas that you see in your office? What are the areas that you see in your neighborhood? Are they tangible like Tanya's story where somebody just needs to get moved and you can show up and help? Is there a single mom who lives near you or someone that you know at work who's a single mom who can't make her rent and then all of a sudden your life group comes around her and gives her 1200 bucks. You think that'll blow her away? In a society that worships money and we just go have it, have it, use it. We're loved by Jesus. Isn't that different? I mean, it could be tangible or emotional, but how are you moving towards people in love to tell them about the Lord Jesus? So how do we make disciples? We, we also have to be the same Christian amongst our Christian friends and our non-Christian friends. Here's the deal. A lot of us can be chameleons at times, and me too. We can just hang out with our non-Christian buddies and have a good time and hang out with our Christian buddies and fellowship. May it not be anymore, guys. Let's put that hypocrisy to death in us. It's there, it's present. Let's put it to death so that we can regardless of whatever situation we're in, telling those who don't love Jesus about him and reminding those who love him to remember him. And finally, we have to be willing to talk about him. We have to be willing to engage others in conversation. Do you know that you can lead someone to faith in Christ? Do you know that the Holy Spirit, because of his authority and power, is at work before you even show up? It's just times where literally you'll have to walk up and it's like picking, up a, picking an apple off a tree. It's ripe. It's ready. You did nothing. You showed up and talked to them and they met Jesus. That happens all the time. But many of us are just so scared and so timid to, to open up and talk. Yes, it's a step of faith, but this is what Jesus has asked us to do. You can ask them if they're religious. That's a great way to start off a conversation. Hey, what do you believe? And just genuinely listen for a while. Take some notes. Get to know kind of how they think and why they think the way they do. And then when the time's right, the Holy Spirit will tell you, hey, tell them about me. Tell them about Jesus. Inherent in being a disciple is making a disciple if you and I claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ and are not actively pursuing making disciples, then our idea of discipleship is not the one that Jesus gives. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples, not just attend church meetings. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples, not just be a part of a great Bible study. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples disciples, because it's an outward focus and many of us live selfishly and inwardly. And here's why this matters. In the church, we often measure maturity by everything else except multiplication. You're mature when you have this killer, amazing prayer life. You're mature when you have such depth and you know the Bible. You're mature when you respond in the fullness of the Spirit to someone who deserves wrath and you give them grace. Please hear me in this. I am not saying that any of those three things, prayer, depth, responding in the character of Christ, I'm not saying any of those things aren't necessary or vital, because they are. But they're not the end goal. The end goal is seeing others come to faith in Jesus Christ by making disciples. Even Jesus, when he entered into the temple, he said, my house is a house of prayer for the what? Nations. That they might come and know. Why is Gordy calling us so much to being a people of prayer? Because there are so many people in this city who need to meet him and know him and love him. And unless we beg God to work, we're just gonna walk out in our own power and think we're hitting home runs when really we're striking out. You see, something or someone that's mature in our society and in our world, we see this, it replicates itself. How do you know when something or someone has come to physical maturity? It has the capability of reproducing. The same is true for the body of Christ. How do you know when the church is operating in full physical maturity? When the members of the body of Christ are reproducing disciples. And in addition, we know that when someone or something can't reproduce physically, we know there's a problem. There's something biologically wrong that isn't functioning and, and being healthy inside of them as it should. Similarly, that can be true in the church as well. When we don't make disciples, when we don't reproduce, it shows us that there's a problem. There's something that's more central to us than disciple making. And if we're honest, you and I both have moments of that, don't we? On Tuesdays, I go to seminary down at Talbot Theological School. That's down on Biola's campus. That's 65 miles one way on the Five Freeway. I was expecting maybe a little more chuckles from the drivers, but hey. That's one way. Then on Tuesday night, when I come back the other direction, I, I get home, I've driven 130 miles. I've listened to my teachers talk about Greek and preaching, and I'm just done. I'm tired. When I get home, the last thing on my mind at times is making disciples. I'm beat. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I've had to deal with some real winners on the road, if you know what I'm saying, swerving left, breaking here and going, ah. We've we've got to put the kids down to bed. We've got a house to clean from the destruction of dinner. You've been there? Um, And then I have homework to start. So making disciples is oftentimes the last thing on my mind. I have too much to do, I say, but I'm wrong. Jesus tells me I'm wrong. My life is not to be about self-focused, crazy, busy schedule. My life is about to be making disciples. Here's where I screw up. I screw up with my kids. I walk in, Paisley and Everett, they're three, they're one, and they don't love Jesus yet. And oftentimes, you know what I do? I come home, I sit down, I get on my phone, and I just check out my day. Man, do you do that? Do you do that with me? And I forget that I have two young kids who need to meet Jesus because of my (laughs) life, because of me, because of my responsibility. And I blow it so much. But God's been so faithful to me to show me that and that I can change and grow. I have to be a disciple maker. Guys, we've been called to put down our phones or anything else that distracts us and connect with other people. We've been called to be those soccer moms and those baseball dads who are around others and wherever we're at, we're telling them about the Lord. We've been called to die to our own pursuits. Have you died yet? I'm still dying every day because I want to be faithful. And we've been called to die so that at work, play, vacation, whatever we do, it's for the glory of God. So let's look at this third life-altering sentence and then we'll be done. Jesus is with us as we make disciples. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus knew that these were the words the disciples needed to hear. Because right after he says that, he just goes spock on us and leaves. He's gone. All of a sudden, he's like, hey, go make disciples. Peace. Gone. Now what? You just told me to go do something. You're not even going to be here? He sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they're filled with him, and then the presence of the Lord Jesus is with them. And the mission that we've been called to is not an easy one. It's it's not a glorious one. It's a long, painful, frustrating, wearying process. That's why he promises his presence for us. Think of the 11 remaining disciples. It all ends badly for them. All of them are martyred except for the apostle John who instead gets boiled in hot oil and then shipped off to an island called Patmos because the king was angry with him. He was probably hoping for martyrdom too. He didn't get it because the Lord still had another plan. The book of Revelation wasn't even revealed yet. So he had to endure all that stuff. Why? Because there's more revelation to give my people, Jesus says. This is precisely why we need his presence. The whole book of Acts is about suffering and dying to ourselves so that others might meet Jesus. If Christ isn't with us, we can't, and we won't enter into this life because it's just too hard. It's not worth it. There are too many other quote-unquote better options that yield satisfaction for this life than disciple-making. But you and I aren't after satisfaction, right? We're not, right? Aren't we about the kingdom? Aren't we about his desires? Aren't we about dying to ourselves? And this is, this is a promise that God gave to Joshua back in, in the book of Joshua. They're about to enter into the promised land, and the Canaanites are there, these huge, giant-like species, and they're little Israel about to go in, and they're told to go take the land. And this seemingly insurmountable task, God says, Joshua, be strong, courageous. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the same way, in this insurmountable task of disciple-making that we have been called to, our Lord Jesus says, I'm with you. And I'm with you in this life, and I'm with you in this death, and I'm with you in eternity. I'm with you. We have to have his presence, guys. He's going to coach us. He's going to lead us. He's going to empower us. He's going to convict us. He's going to cause change in our lives. And then we're going to get to do it together as a church. More and more being disciple makers together as Cornerstone Church here in Moore Park. You see these three sentences, the Great Commission is life-altering if you allow it to be. The Great Commission has led Christians for over thousands of years to be faithful to our Lord and Savior and be disciples that make disciples. We are here today in Moore Park, 1153 AM on a Sunday, because thousands of years ago people were faithful who is going to be in these seats because of your faithfulness and my faithfulness? Who? Who's the Holy Spirit putting on your mind right now that you have to go and talk to because the Spirit of God is leading you, you've been ignoring it, and you want to be faithful? Those are the people that need to hear. Jesus said that this is the most important thing we are to be about in our daily lives. So together, we can be faithful to the Spirit's leading We can see people meet Jesus. We can see them become disciples. And we can see a revival in our city that this world has never seen. Because it's possible. All throughout church history, when people prayed for revival, they didn't expect it to come then. And oftentimes it didn't. But it came later. It always came later because of the faithful obedience for God's people to pray. So we've been called to a wonderfully hard task. And God's faithful to lead us if we want to choose to walk in his ways and if we want to be true to what Jesus commands of his church, to make disciples. You can do it. Spirit of God's in you. It's possible to use you for this. We're going to look at a couple of reflection questions then we'll close. What hinders you from being a disciple maker? What lifestyle changes do you need to make in order to be faithful to the mission God has given you? How has God specifically gifted you to make disciples? And how can you use your gifts to build the kingdom of God? Again, you and I are unique. I'm not like you and you're not like me. And that's a good thing. Because the world needs to see Christ demonstrated in all of your lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. We're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to sing to him. We're going to enjoy him. If you're on the prayer team, I just invite you to come up as I pray and come on up here and, and, and be ready to pray for people. And if you're not a Christian and you're in here, Jesus Christ wants to save you today. Come, be prayed for. Confess your sins and he'll love you. and He'll serve you and he's been gracious to you. But come and receive eternal life today if you're not a Christian. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll respond in praise. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We're thankful for this truth. We're thankful for this life-altering news. And Father, we ask for obedience to obey. We ask for your spirit to fill us to do this. Lord, in and of ourselves, this is gonna be a tiring, wearying process. And God, we need your help. God, I need your help to be faithful in all arenas and not distracted. So Father, would you help us today? please. We want to be about your glory. We want to be about what you have called us to, God, making disciples. So Lord, may this be a practical reality for everyone in here. Holy Spirit, would you allow your word to go deep in their hearts, like Colby prayed earlier, that they might be faithful today. So God, make us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name.